Well, good morning again. Such a great day. Hey, there's a traditional Easter greeting uh, that the church has used literally for centuries that goes like this for, for this day. Uh, a leader says, Christ is risen. And the response is, yes, he is risen indeed. So church, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Happy Easter. Uh, Easter, of course, marks the end of the season of Lent. Pastor Brian already referenced this. Uh, the season of Lent is a 40-day period of time that's meant to kind of parallel the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted by all of those temptations that are common to all of us. And for Lent this year, as Brian said, we focused on the seven last statements of Jesus from the cross, words from the cross. But these weren't his final words, as Brian noted. After his resurrection, he, he spoke more, he said more. The powerful and joyous message of Easter is that there were words after these, after the words from the cross. His dying words were not his final words. So this Easter, we're going to go back and look at those words that Jesus spoke after his resurrection and what they mean for us. And we'll specifically look at five occasions when Jesus spoke. Like the words from the cross, the gospel accounts differ in small details. They, those, those four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the same story from a little bit different angle. So I don't know exactly the order in which these words were spoken, but if you look at it and kind of try to get your your mind around it, it does make sense. There's a kind of chronological order. So we're using the traditional ordering of those today. Uh, all of the Gospels agree that Mary Magdalene, uh, that wasn't her last name, it was a woman named Mary from the village of Magdala, uh, so kind of like Jesus the Nazarene, he was from Nazareth, Mary the Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, was the first there and thus the first to hear words that Jesus spoke after he was raised from the dead. So let me pray for us, and then we'll listen to that story. Father, as we open the scripture, please open our minds and hearts along with that. Pour out your spirit upon us. Uh, help us move toward you this day. We come from many different places. Our, our minds and hearts are, are burdened with many different kinds of things. But Lord, I pray that you would reset us in your presence today, that you'd speak to us and that you would help us see you as you are. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's listen to the scripture. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where he, you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, 
to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tucker. What a fine young man. (laughs) Whose kid is that, anyway? Good job, buddy. Thank you. Uh, The the, the scene is powerful if um, you imagine your way into it. And that's a great way to read the Bible, by the way, not just to, you know, rifle through the words and, and just let them kind of bounce off of you, but to read slowly and, and imagine your way into the story, kind of wonder with the passage, what, what did things look like? How did it feel? What were the sights? What were the smells? You know, imagine your way into the story. We heard the first part of this chapter at the very beginning of the service. Mary went to the tomb, found the the stone rolled away, and then ran back to tell Peter and John. Then those two apostles ran to the tomb, found it just as Mary had said. And some time passed, and then we read this. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Meaning, Peter and John went home. They, They ran to check it out and said, yep, Empty. And then they went home. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She just couldn't pry herself away. She stayed put. She stayed right there. Because, you see, Mary wanted to be where Jesus was. But he was gone. Not only was he dead, but now his body was missing. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary. See, after encountering Jesus, she was a completely different woman. She had been healed, delivered from spiritual oppression, given new life. She was made new, and Mary wanted to be where Jesus was. And she was not going to leave that place where she knew him to last be. I I love one commentator's thoughts on this. I, I think Mary's staying right there is exactly what Jesus sticking, making one's home with, staying right there discipleship verb in John 15 seeks to elicit in disciples as Jesus' most sought after form of faith. It's a mouthful of a quote. John 15 is that chapter about abiding in Christ. And in the original language, that word abide simply means stay with the person. Stay right there. Stick with them. So when Jesus teaches that in John 15, he's saying, stay with me. Stick by my side. It's exactly what we see in Mary. She wasn't about to leave. She would stay where she last knew Jesus to be because Mary wanted to stay with Jesus. She wanted to be where he was, to remain with him, to abide in him. But he was dead and gone. And she wept bitterly. The angels saw her, as our our passage said, and and they asked her why, why she was crying. Now, in the context, we read it and it says, woman, why are you crying? It comes off kind of cold, right? Like, woman, why are you crying? That's not how it was. In the original context, this was a, 
an emotionally sensitive question, very appropriate. Hey, why are you, why are you crying? And she, she explains to them that um, she, her, her Lord was gone, you know, and then she, she turns and then she sees Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Then we get Jesus' first recorded words after he was raised from the dead. He asked Mary this, woman, why are you crying? Same question as the angels. He's empathizing, he's compassionate, he's trying to connect with her. And then he adds another question the angels didn't ask. Who is it you're looking for? See, Jesus added that second question, who are you looking for? Because he knew that she was not looking for something, she was looking for someone. Just like I believe God knows that all of us are looking ultimately not for something but for someone, a person, a capital S, someone. Mary turns from the angels in the tomb to Jesus standing outside. The scene, you can imagine yourself there, right? Mary facing in the tomb. She, she peeks, saw the angels, and she turns and saw, saw Jesus but didn't recognize him. Just a matter of a few seconds in there and, and, that, and that conversation. I, I love what Frederick Dale Bruner writes of this. In the one or two seconds this turn took, I imagine the world shifting ever so slightly on its axis. And at about this turn's one-second midpoint, history, too, moved almost imperceptibly from B.C. to A.D. A second before this turn, there's a woman in the deepest human despair in the agonizing presence of unconquerable death. A second after this turn, there's a woman in the deepest possible human elation in the presence of, I love this now, the death-conquering central figure of history. The rush that must have come over this woman in her two-second turn is unimaginable. She's the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. When she turned to him at this moment, human history took a turn to a responsible hope for the vincibility of death and so to the conquest of meaninglessness. Granted, you got to let that quote percolate in your percolator for a little bit. A responsible hope for the vincibility of death. Our hope that death has been conquered is not irresponsible. It's not an irresponsible hope. It's a responsible hope because of all of the evidence supporting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not, not spiritually, not metaphorically. This isn't an analogy. Bodily. Raised from the dead in his body. Mary was the first person to experience the presence, the personal presence of the risen Lord. Mary now from whom seven demons had been driven, right? In modern diagnosis, we might have labeled her schizophrenic or as having a multiple personality disorder. You see, Jesus is pleased 
to use us broken people to share the good news about God and and himself. I know that's encouraging to this broken person. I hope it is to you as well. The first word was spoken to Mary. The second to the other women with Mary gathered there. This from Matthew's gospel. So the women hurried away from the tomb, that's after seeing the angels, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So the first two words Jesus spoke after his resurrection, one, the first to Mary of Magdala, and then the second to the other women with Mary. Jesus appeared first to women. Very significant culturally in that day. I love what one author writes about this. I I love this about Jesus. He took those who were not allowed to be rabbis and preachers, one of whom had been seen as damaged goods, and chose them to be the first to know that he was alive. Then he commissioned them to share the good news of the resurrection with his disciples. See, the early church fathers referred to these women. It's It's a great label. They referred to them as the apostles to the apostles. What a thing. Culturally, in a culture where the testimony of a woman in a court of law counted as half the testimony of a man. See, I think the point is clear. God's doing something new, and he wants everybody on the team on the field, not just half of them. This good news is for everyone, and everyone who is in Christ is commissioned to share the good news. It's as simple as that. All the social boundary markers that we like to draw in this life come undone in Jesus, says the apostle Paul, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We stand as one at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And on this day, in front of the tomb that to this day remains empty. See, God uses regular people like you and me to advance his purposes in the world. Look at what the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The the next two words Jesus spoke show his ongoing concerning compassion toward people. The third word came on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them, two of his followers, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, here's the third word, 
What are you discussing together as you walk along? I love that. The third word Jesus spoke after being raised from the dead. Hey, hey, what you talking about? One, one of the two was named Cleopas, and the other is unnamed. While this is not certain, many think that this Cleopas is the same person referred to as John 19 as Clopas. According to a historical reference, Clopas was Jesus' uncle, the brother of Joseph. Clopas was married to a woman named Mary, not the mother of Jesus. This would have been Aunt Mary to him. Some suggest it was Clopas and Mary walking the road to Emmaus. So to Jesus, this would have been Uncle Clopas and Aunt Mary. If this was the case, Jesus would have been appearing to two of the people he knew best in this world. And because it seemed that his dad, in this life at least, Joseph, died early in Jesus' life. He kind of disappears from the gospel accounts. We don't hear anything more about him. Because it appears Joseph died early when Jesus was still young, Clopas might have been the closest thing Jesus had to an earthly father. Clopas and Mary were were devastated. They loved their nephew, had supported him in his ministry. Mary, the wife of Clopas, had stood with Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the foot of the cross. She kept watch with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and together they watched Jesus die. They were tight. This couple had hoped Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel, but now he was dead. Not only a deep loss personally, but a a deep spiritual loss, an, an undoing of everything for which they were hoping. And they were talking about this as they walked all they had experienced, certainly sharing their grief and their pain. Probably much like a funeral goes on after the actual day, telling stories that make you laugh or make you cry or all of that, right? And Jesus asks, hey, what are you talking about? He already knew, of course, and he knew exactly what they needed to be assured that he, Jesus, was exactly who he claimed to be and that the scriptures all pointed to all of the events of that day just as they had unfolded. You can read the whole story on your own. Jesus unpacks the scriptures for them, showing how everything pointed to exactly what had happened. Jesus loved these two, sought to comfort and reassure them. And Jesus loves us and seeks to reassure us of the reality of Easter as well. The compassion of it, the, the, the knowing where the other person is and wanting to meet them there so as to help them. That's Jesus. And continuing in compassion, Jesus appeared to the apostles prior to his promised meeting with them in Galilee on the evening of that first day. So all four of these have been on that first day. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This was the passage Pastor Brian referenced earlier. The disciples were terrified, rightly so. I mean, they were in hiding, fearing the Jewish leaders would push the effort to squelch this Jesus movement to the next 
natural concentric circle out. That was them. And if they killed the leader, they were next on the list. The door was locked. Let it not be lost on any of us that the very first thing Jesus said to his disciples when he saw them was, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And the exclamation point is not just an English addition. This is much more than an I hope you feel better kind of peace. The original language was emphatic. In the same power by which Jesus spoke peace over the wind and waves of Galilee, he spoke peace over his followers. Peace, be still. And it's a promise, not just a nice sentiment, right? Look at what Jesus said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. There's a lot of us here today. I, I don't know how you arrived here today. I don't know what concerns are weighing on you. I don't know what fears you might be harboring in your heart. Maybe there's something that's waking you up in the middle of the night. It's so concerning. I, I don't know those things. You, you, you know those. But I I do know this, the living Lord Jesus is speaking peace over you in a couple very basic ways. If you've never come back into a relationship with God, come home to God through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. There's that invitation, come to peace. I want you to have my peace. If you know what it is to trust Christ and walk with him, this is reassurance, which we need to hear over and and over again. Jesus didn't promise his followers health or wealth or prosperity. He promised them peace, real peace. Peace be with you. We, We continue this promise when we share the peace in the service. We're not just greeting one another in that time. Followers of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit have been authorized to share the peace of Christ with other people. So we do that. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to share that peace with the whole world. And that's what Jesus' final words are about. See, the eyewitness accounts that comprise Parts of our New Testament tell us that Jesus continued to appear to people over a period of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. He said many things that aren't recorded in the Bible, but we do have some of the very last words he spoke before he ascended to heaven. Matthew's gospel records them. Jesus said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, now in our day, culturally, that, that word disciple can carry some baggage. Sometimes if we hear that, we think uh, of a fanatic, right? A, a weirdo, closed-minded, something like that. In, in Jesus' day, it was much more simple. A disciple was simply a student, 
That's what the Greek word actually means. Mathetes means a student, a learner, or an apprentice. Dallas Willard, a a great Christian author, highlighted that, that apprentice kind of language. See, disciples are apprentices who learn a way of life and work from their master. So a disciple of Jesus is one who is learning the way of Jesus and seeking to become like Jesus. In his final words, Jesus reminded his followers that he had given them commands, not suggestions. He had given them commands. And he told them to teach those commands, to teach that way of life, that that way of viewing what's really going on in the world to others such that they too might become apprentices of Jesus. Disciples making disciples. You know, apprentices being apprenticed such that they grow up and can apprentice others who grow up to apprentice others who grow up to apprentice others. We take our mission as a church from these final words of Jesus, growing disciples who make disciples. I, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. My dad was in the Air Force, so I grew up in the shadow of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's one of the larger bases in the country, big research and development kind of base. So I kind of grew up in that. Uh, my dad wasn't military the whole time, but I grew up in that kind of military culture. And, and when you grow up in that culture, you learn very clearly that there is a chain of command. And if you've been in the military, this is a no-brainer for you. Uh, there's a, cha- a chain of command, and it was very clear at Wright-Patterson that the base commander was the boss. No doubt about that. When the base commander said something, it, it happened. And I've, I've got stories about that, but that's for another time. There's, there's a doctrine in the military called commander's intent. Very, very interesting. It, it means that when a commander, when a leader issues an order, the intent of that order should be clear. In short, a commander's intent expresses purpose, defines success, guides planning, and spurs individual initiative. Another really important piece of this doctrine is if, uh, if perchance the commander should be killed in battle, the subordinates are, con- are to continue advancing that intent until another order comes from an equal or higher authority. See, in his final words, Jesus made his intent clear. His final words, he issued us a command. He wants his followers to go out. What that means is connect with other people. Sometimes it might be fly across the world. Sometimes it might be knock on your neighbor's door, build relationships, connect with other people, and and share with them the things that Jesus said and, and the way of life we found in him, inviting them to apprentice under Jesus as well. Disciples making disciples. That's his purpose. Jesus' final words also define success. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We kind of read across that all nations part like, yeah, this is a, this is a message that needs to move outward. That's, that's really not what Jesus was getting at here, I don't think. I mean, it, it was that, but that wasn't all of it. 
The words translated all nations literally mean all the ethnicities. In, in the Greek, the phrase is uh, uh, panta ta ethne. Pa, pa, pan, like the Pan American Games, all the athletes from the Americas can come compete. Pan means all. Panta ta, the ethne, ethnic. You know, we get our English word ethnic, ethnicities from that. All the ethnicities. It's a message for the world, yes, but by world, we mean everyone, everywhere. All the ethnicities. Every ethnicity you can imagine and every person of that ethnicity is to be discipled, invited to apprentice under Jesus. And, and success is not just when everyone everywhere has heard the message, but when everyone everywhere has submitted to Jesus and we're all seeking to love, honor, and serve him, learning his way of life, thanking him, worshiping him. That's success. And the only strategy, the only strategy that is scalable to the point where that success can be achieved is disciples making disciples. Because we can't plant enough of these to invite people into an experience like this to hear the good news. It has to be us as followers of Jesus connecting with other people. It has to be a multiplicative movement. That was Jesus' vision. See, when you put the final words of Jesus, the ones he spoke after his resurrection together, you get a very compelling vision. He spoke first to the women. The Lord wants everybody on the team. Every Christ follower everywhere is on the team. He shared peace with his disciples. The Lord promised to give us peace in his name, a peace that supersedes our circumstances and is bigger than our biggest problems. And he commanded us followers to move out into this lost and broken world so loved by God to announce the great news that the someone for whom all of us has been looking has arrived. We don't have to go find him. He came to us. And now he's alive again. See, that gets back to something Jesus said in his first word to Mary Magdalene. Remember, he asked, who is it that you're looking for? Addressing that reality, I think, that Augustine named so clearly that our hearts are restless, O oh God, until they find their rest in you. We're restless. We're on the hunt. We know something's not right when we're walking apart from God. And, and in the last part of what Jesus said to Mary, we find something very significant. Jesus said, in, instead of Mary clinging on to him, Jesus said, go instead to my brothers and tell them, this is to the apostles now, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and, and your God. There's a big change here. Sometimes we read right over it. Everywhere else in the New Testament, Jesus was very careful when in speaking with other people to never use the phrase, our God. He always said, my God. Now, he taught his disciples to pray, but they would carry that prayer on after his death, our Father. That's the only time. Every other time, Jesus said, hey, I'm talking to my, my God, my Father. See, the, the relationship between Jesus and the Father was utterly unique. He was God's son. 
But now Jesus tells Mary to tell the disciples, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we too can be children of God, adopted into the family of God, daughters and sons of the living God, called Christ's own forever. Our part is really simple. I experienced it because I came to Christ when I was 22. You got to stop saying no to God because that's a real problem and y'all know it. You got to stop saying no to God. You got to say yes to Jesus and what that means is just turning toward all you know of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and saying, yes, I need help. I need you. Please forgive me. And third, just asking God for help in this new apprenticing relationship of which you are now a part. Hey, would you help me learn? Would you help me grow? Would you help me follow you? That's, that's the invitation of Easter. It's really pretty simple. It's an invitation to become an apprentice of Jesus. And as we become apprentices of Jesus, we're learning to, as Dallas Willard put it, live the life of the kingdom of God into every corner of human existence. <laughs> what, a, what a great way to describe our calling as Christians, to live the life of the kingdom of God into every corner of human existence. It's a noble, challenging, exciting, difficult calling and task. But it's ours in Christ because everybody's on the team. Said the angels to the women at the tomb, he is not here. He has risen. Thanks be to God. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the great hope of the resurrection. Thank you that our, our hope that death has been conquered is a responsible hope because of the empty tomb. Thank you, Father, for all of the historical evidence that supports your life and death and, and even your resurrection. Thank you that you call us to new life, that you offer new life. We together want to stop saying no to you wherever we've been doing that. We want to turn to you and say yes. So God, please pour out your spirit on us and, and help us. Help us as we turn and move toward you. We want to seek you and honor you. We thank you this day for the hope with which you've left us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.